We're going to continue our series. We've been uh, introduced the uh, what is normally the Palm Sunday passage, where the uh, triumphal entry. And if you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21, we're going to um, uh, do a little backtrack there and then move on in the passage. And I'm making this intentionally making this a three or four week look at this because what this is is a look at the last week of Jesus. There are several geographical and time markers in this story that make it pretty clear. And all four gospel accounts uh, include uh, the story, of course, of the last week of Jesus' life, giving us a clue that this is pretty central to what God wants us to understand about Jesus' ministry and about the plan of salvation and, uh, and all of the things that go with that, all the things that we represent as a church and when we take the Lord's Supper once a month. Now, before we get started here, I want to read with you an article here. I ran this a couple weeks ago, but we didn't spend any time on it. But I want to uh, redo this. Uh, and There's an article in a little blue page inside your bulletin that's got some notes, uh, that uh, place for notes for the message that we'll be dealing with. But I'd like to um, talk about miracles for a little bit because that subject comes up in this passage but it's not just in this passage the whole resurrection event is of course the phenomenal miracle of Jesus coming back to life in other words it's an invasion of the norm by God and that's uh, certainly a central element of it and uh, once you believe that the rest of the miracles uh, make a lot more sense and don't seem that problematic because that one is such a huge one. But when we talk about miracles, I think we should be on the same page. Now, for some of you, this might be old news, but for some of you, maybe this is a term that you, don't, uh, you hear but don't understand. We often say miracle. Uh, I was listening, watching a ball game, a basketball game the other day, and by the way, the Ducks are playing their second in their playoffs uh, this, today, and so is Gonzaga. And uh, both of these are highly valued teams, and God wishes them to win, so um, you should be praying to that end. <laughs> well, no. But I heard an announcement, announcer say, that shot was just a miracle. Now, and we often say things like, miracle of life, new birth, uh, miracles of all kinds, and I think it's okay to use it as a figure of speech, but a lot of things are not miracles in the way that the Bible speaks about miracles. And this might be worth keeping in mind sometimes because if you use a word too easily, it tends to water down its significance. So, read with me here. Understanding miracles. The word miracle in the Bible is a translation of the Greek word dunamis. Uh, our word, we get our word dynamite from that, or power. Not just any power, but controlled power that shows God's intentional intervention into the natural order. Miracles are also called signs and wonders because they point to God and defy natural explanation. Miracles are not normative or they would cease to be miracles. The mission of the Christian is to live like Jesus did, subject to and empathetic with the world that everyone else has to live in. This is what Jesus did as the Son of God by coming to earth to live as a human. Restoration of our true humanness is the goal of godly living. The otherworldly embodiment comes later. 
evidence. Jesus taught that a skeptical mind could be a good thing and being gullible a bad thing. Miracle claims should not be made lightly and neither should claims of special identity or special messages from God. Evidence is God's way of verifying his words, but no amount of evidence can make a believer. That's a transaction on the spiritual level between the individual and God. Providence is a better term for the marvelous nature of the created world. God the Creator designed the world intelligently and is still involved with his project. He superintends its operation but does not micromanage. God can and does work through doctors, through science, through work, through human efforts of all kinds. Limiting God to just miracles makes him a performing pit, a cosmic Santa Claus, or a mere bank account. He's actually pretty smart so he should be allowed room to work in multiple formats and venues. Miracles of the heart and the mind are sometimes even more amazing. Genuine repentance, genuine softening of the heart, genuine love and compassion, genuine change of values, genuine spiritual rebirth are all miracles of the invisible kind. They can't be accomplished with normal powers. Expect miracles in your life, but be open to what, God, what kind God chooses for you. Expect miracles in your life, but don't demand them. Let God be Lord. Expect miracles in your life, but learn to see the providential hand of God in the world around you every day as well. This may take even greater faith and depth on your part. Take a step beyond the small God and let God be as big and creative as he'd like to be in your life. So now in the 21st chapter of Matthew, we're going to pick up here uh, when Jesus came into. Jerusalem, the city, uh, they were shouting Hosanna to the son of David. And they were putting down their cloaks and palm branches uh, on, uh, on the road. And he comes in and when he got there, he sort of surprised them by what he did. If you look at verse 12 of Matthew 21, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to see him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you not read from the lips of children and infants? You have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Now I say this is kind of unusual. Last week we talked about the unusual king. But let me draw a couple of important points from this that we didn't spend any time on. Because the very next story flows right from this. The way that Matthew tells it and the way that chronologically it took place. The temple was the place where God had told the Israelites would be his dwelling place. Technically, though, he didn't say dwelling place. He said, this is where my name will dwell. But over time, it became his dwelling place. But in a way, it was central to the worship of Israel, a place, a certain geographical spot. Now, we know from other teaching in the New Testament that in terms of Christians, the temple of God is where God dwells in the world in us. When we are the family of God, the church, Paul addresses this subject in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Don't you know you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? 
And meaning, God dwells in us and therefore has a place in the world where he can be represented. That's us, wherever we are. And when we gather, Jesus said, I'll be there in a special way. That's because it's us. It doesn't have to be in any particular building of any particular style. It just has to be us gathered in Jesus' name. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul was talking there about the individual's body. The body is a temple. Have you ever heard the expression, your body is a temple? Uh, well, it actually says it in two ways. One, the church body is a temple of the Holy Spirit collectively, but your body is also the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what you do with your body, he says, at length in that chapter, matters because when the Holy Spirit lives in you, that's his body. And you're you don't want to be trashing with moral behaviors or misbehaviors or those kind of things or trashing the body because this is his body. He lives here. Now, it's not just yours anymore. We talk in the... Uh, late 20th century, early 21st century in America, all about owning your own body. Well, it's true in terms of boundaries. But in a lot of ways, you don't own your own body, for one thing. There are all kind of laws that say what you can and cannot do to yourself. Uh, but furthermore, if you know God or care about God, this is not your body anyway. It's his body. And we should take care of it. And we should care about what we do with it, both in terms of upkeep and the morality part of it. So this is what Jesus is pointing out to them. It's really a statement of need for revival. He's not criticizing the temple and its structures uh, he, because that's what God set up. All of this is biblical except what it became. Two things stand out. The blind and the lame came to him. Well, the blind and the lame were prohibited. Don't, this is the house of God. We can't have blind and lame people in the house of God. But they followed Jesus in. And the children. The children were not allowed in the house of God. So here's Jesus really stirring the pot. Not by saying, you guys have done wrong to have a temple in Jerusalem. God told them to build the temple in Jerusalem. That was never the criticism. The criticism was what you've allowed it to become. And I do believe that that is uh, the nature of human gravitational pull. That we need periodic revival. You need it in your life. You might call it spring cleaning. I don't know if you've noticed, but things accumulate. Things accumulate in your car. You ever notice that? The floor starts to build up with stuff. Garbage. Dust. Accumulates in your house. Starts to build up. Accumulates everywhere. Because that's the way the world works. And it, it, it works that way in our lives too. I think a society, given enough time passage in its history, needs some kind of moral and spiritual revival. Or it will collapse under its own weight of dirt, trash, garbage. And a church needs periodic revival. Or it will become something that God himself finds repugnant. You may, uh, some of you may know about revival meetings. Uh, there was a history in certain types of churches of annual revival meetings. 
I think they mostly figured out that you can't really schedule revivals very well. Well, we're going to have a revival in our church on June, chapter, June 16 through 21. So y'all come and we're going to get revived. Well, it turned out the revival meetings turned out over time to have their own tradition and baggage. Yeah, you can't schedule that because it's a spiritual and heart condition. And it happens in our own lives. Happens in marriages and families. If you don't periodically tune up your marriage with dates and whatever else it takes, dating, I should say, I don't mean the, the food, uh, dating and those kind of things, you're going to pay. Uh, if you get busy in your life and you don't periodically take time aside to build your marriage, back up, revive it, it's going to be gone. It does happen. And on a personal level, if you don't let God clean you out once in a while, spiritually and morally, you're eventually going to stink. Uh, you know, I mean, really. I don't mean physically stink, but spiritually and morally stink. No matter how religious you are, the Jews were very religious people. That was never the point Jesus was making. But when this came, king, king came, he started by saying, let's start from the inside and out and not worry so much about the kingdom and its visible manifestation. Well, then another interesting incident takes place in verse 18. Early in the morning, I remember I mentioned to you about the chronological linking conjunctions and the storytelling here. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. And when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt... Not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now, taken by itself, that verse 22, that's, a, that's an interesting verse. Whatever you want, if you believe, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. But... You can't really do that with biblical teaching about prayer or anything else. Isolate it from other things. Things that the Bible also says about the will of God, the condition of your heart, your motivation, and all of these things. But nevertheless, the point that he's making, remember in the 20th chapter when uh, Jesus predicted his death and uh, suffering, the disciples' first response was, I get to be top dog when you're gone. And they got in a fight about it. Who got to be the top dog when Jesus was gone? It's interesting here that the disciples kind of follow a similar pattern. They are struck by the tree, the miracle of killing the tree. Zap, the tree died. Wow, that's interesting. Can we do that? And Jesus really is saying here, if you look at the context, the miracles are the easy part. Doing, moving a mountain... Or withering a tree. I have never had much success with gardening, so I could say I've already accomplished that part. I forget to water the shrubs. I got a nice little brown one right now in my yard that I'm going to have to pull up, which I forgot to water. So that's not such a big job. But Jesus is really saying, 
you know, these external miracles, we tend to think that this is the big stuff. And if you watch a lot of television, religious television, you will reach the same conclusion. Getting some money, getting healed, getting a miracle of a physical kind, that's the big stuff. Actually, Jesus is saying, that's the little stuff. What really matters here is that their mission that God gave them to represent him in the world was not being done. And the withered tree is a symbol of how God will simply remove them and replace them with somebody who will do the job. Jesus didn't really introduce a new idea here. You will find if you look back in Micah chapter 7, fig tree is actually used of the Israelites as a, a barren tree. You're a barren tree. I'm going to have to remove you, says God in the Old Testament. So Jesus is picking up on some symbolism that was already there. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus said, you are the salt of the world, but if the salt loses its savor or its flavor, it's not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underneath, used as pavement or something like that. Paul in 2 Timothy says, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of it. So leave them. They're death. They're religious, but they're dead. So Jesus is actually linking what he did to the fig tree as a living parable to what is happening to the people of Israel. God is moving on. They weren't doing the job. God is going to keep on working in the world whether they wanted to be part of it or not. That's an important point. But when it comes to the miracles, I think that it's important to see God at work in our lives. Physical miracles or any kind. God can provide financially for you and for the church. God can heal you. God can do all kinds of things for you. I know that Marjorie and I have experienced in our lives many miracles. But I think that we would agree that the greatest miracles of all have really been the things that have happened internally. The changes of attitudes that we have seen. Well, you know, when Jesus sent out the disciples on their mission, their training mission, they came back, Luke chapter 10 tells a story about they came back and they were awestruck. And they said, they said, Demons are cast out at our commands, and people are healed, and, and uh, they listed off several things. And Jesus said, that's the little stuff. You should be amazed that your names are written in God's book. In other words, the internal transformation is the end result. This is important to keep in mind sometimes when we think, well, I wish God would do a miracle here. How do you know he's not? How do you know he's not doing a miracle? I think that many of the miracles in retrospect from our life we would have to think we didn't see as miracles at the time God answered a prayer in a very powerful way that changed our lives but not in the way that we were asking for at the time so the disciples focus on that if you have faith if you you, you can move a mountain easier than you can move a heart you can change a, you can put a mountain in the sea there uh, Seattle if you're Seattle, I saw, we were talking about Seattle here earlier. Um, you know, a good part of Seattle's downtown, you know, was created by moving a mountain into Elliott Bay. Uh, and that's, so it's, it's happened. It's uh, happened lots of times. Mountains get moved all the time. 
my son lives up real close to a mountain by Oso, Washington. That just fell down last year. And, uh, but so what Jesus, the context of this is pretty important. You, you keep your focus on the point here, representing God. The miracles are important, but if you never get beyond getting some more cash or getting a fixed body or whatever it is you want, it's too bad. Because the fact is, you can have a miracle in your life every single day and you're still going to die roughly the same time everybody else is. There's no way around it. And then there's all eternity to think about. And you can have a miracle in your life every single day and be of no use to anybody except yourself. You can go through life and have wonderful health, mountains of gold, beautiful houses, and all kinds of things that you want from God and be the most useless people on earth. If you don't believe me, just look at the people you see on television a lot. You really think that the richest people in the world... And the most beautiful people in the world are the most useful people in the world. Not when you take into account the big values. Jesus entered the temple courts. Now he's back. In verse 23, Jesus entered the temple courts and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who, who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, well, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. This is another application, uh, illustration of what Jesus meant back in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, don't throw pearls before swine. I think sometimes it's just not necessary to answer people's puzzlement questions. Some people are seriously looking for answers, but a lot of people are just looking for ways around the truth and uh, that's okay they can have it but Jesus said no many times the notion that to be a follower of Jesus you have to say yes every time somebody asks you for something or asks you to say something or do something or prove something that you have to do that look at the life of Jesus he said no a lot Jesus was a very good no-sayer he was also a good yes-sayer but he was a very good no-sayer when people ask sometimes it's better to say Nah, just not going to bother with that. Moving on here. We're going to talk about this a little bit more next week, how that links to the question. But it's important to note that this is getting down to the decision point for those people, for those leaders of the culture. This is where they're going to have to decide. Everybody has to make a decision point. The time for proof, evidence, provision of visible manifestation and miracles is all done. Jesus' ministry has reached a point as it does in everybody's life on a personal level, including ours, when it's time for you just to act. You know, I think sometimes we, we play the puzzlement game a little too much. 
well, I don't really know if this is the Lord's will or not. And, you know, what about this? What about that? And years later, we're still asked saying the same thing. Not necessarily about coming to Jesus, but maybe about some change in your life. Something you ought to do different in your life. Positive or negative change. Well, you know, what about this? What about that? After a while, it begins to look and smell like a game. The answers are all provided. It's just time for you to decide. Stop doing that or start doing that or come to Jesus now or the door will close this is a, not a game we're playing here it's real so they were getting to the point where they're now where now they're saying by what authority and you know where this is going to lead of course you know that Jesus ended up on a cross by these same people and that's where it's supposed to get to Eventually, I have always felt, I thought of this, I think, for the first time, most clearly, former church. A couple got, came to our church and got involved, quite involved, and after about a year, they decided, uh, we decided we're leaving. And I said, why? And they said, well, we've been here long enough to know what you guys stand for, and we don't agree, and we don't like it, so we're gone. I said, thank you. That's our job, to be clear enough that people have a right and the ability to choose. And that's the way it worked with Jesus. It got to the point where these people knew that now they had to get on or get off. And that's a good place. That's really our mission, isn't it? We can't make people into Christians. Not our job. It wasn't the Israelites' job. It wasn't even Jesus' job. The job is to be so clear that they can make a decision about whether to be part of it or not part of it. That's where Jesus was leading in his ministry. We'll pick this up next week with the next couple of illustrations of the point. Takeaways for life. Number one, gravity is a powerful force and spring cleaning is necessary. Anything needing rejuvenation or cleaning in your life. Now that's a good time. You know, we talk about New Year's resolutions. What about spring cleaning? When you're doing this to your house and your yard, getting a garden ready to plant and your yard and whatever, cleaning out your house. How about yourself? Maybe it's just time to change something. Get something out. Get rid of an attitude you've been carrying around or start something new, some ministry or habit. Or get rid of an old habit that's dragging you down. Number two, beware. Cleaning up the society, the church, your own life will hurt. This is life or death activity here. Now, I mentioned society here, and I didn't before. But this is actually what was going on here. The fact that it was a religious society still means that it was more than just the church he was talking about, or the temple people, or his own disciples. He was talking about the whole society they lived in. He was challenging them. But it's not going to be easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus to take that stand. It cost him his life. But it's not going to be easy for us, too, to be followers of Jesus. It's going to mean going against the grain sometimes. Number three, God is patient but not stupid. Respond when you have the chance. You know, the Israelites were warned, if you look at the Old Testament history, hundreds of times, really, that, look, guys got to get back on the track here or God is going to 
remove you and give somebody else the job. And that happens in societies, countries, whole countries. God has simply bypassed. You can stand for something good in the world, but if you don't keep doing it, God will find somebody else to do it. He's not going to quit just because you don't want to be on board, and he's not going to quit if a church does not want to be on board. He will move on and send his spirit to a different one. And you and your personal life, he's not going to just quit and wring his hands if you decide you don't want to be on board with all this spiritual stuff. He's going to move on like the fig tree. Where's the fruit? That's the lesson in it. There was no fruit. So, okay, that one's done. We're moving on to a different one. That was the point Jesus was making. And they got the point. Shows up in the next chapter as well. Point number four. The power to change is available. Need any miracles today in your own life? No, physical, yes. Provision, yes. We should pray for those things. But what about anything else? Something that's defeating you. An attitude, a grudge, a, a, an addiction, or something that is defeating you and maybe nobody else even knows about it. Miracles are available. In fact, the miracles, that's the given. God wants to be involved and he will intervene if you so desire. Number five, speaking for God is either arrogant or true. Handle with care and start at home. The Israelites, uh, the leaders there, they challenged him. By what authority? By the authority of God himself. Yahweh the creator was his answer ultimately. I am speaking for him and we do too. It may seem arrogant, but if we are genuine followers of Jesus and we stick to his word, that's what happens. We are speaking for God. We have something to say. We should say it, but it should start at home. We should uh, be sure that we're not preaching to people about things that we ourselves do not do. That's how Jesus' credibility was tested. His entire life could be examined, and he passed that test. Started with himself, of course, and then the disciples, he challenged them. And that's now our mission. Speak for God, but make sure we're applying it to ourselves first. Father, we appreciate the fact that your power is available. And we give to you the things that may be interrupting and weakening our lives. We want rejuvenation and revival. Just as Jesus started with the temple for those who took the name of God and worked on down, that's what you're doing with us too. We want ourselves. We want our church, but our own homes, our lives, our habits, our hearts to be right with you. Seek out those things that weaken us, that have, by the force of gravity, returned us to a state that is really fallen and not walking with you. Take those things from us. Work miracles in our lives. Work miracles both in the external sense and the internal sense. We're asking you to do that so we can experience your presence and power. In Jesus' name, amen.